I wonder what else could be different around here. And that's the subversive power of the arts. And that's why people are afraid of it. And so, um, but we need that subversion. We need artists to say, tell people what could be different, that things could be different. They don't have to be like this. Freedom, for me, is a direct response to feel that I can directly respond to events and honestly respond to it um, without compromising my integrity. And that sometimes means upsetting, well actually it often means upsetting myself because I have to work internally first. I have to really engage with what I'm doing and dissect my reactions to things and why I'm responding in the way that I do. The need to address the, the myth of absence, the, um, the, the myth that we don't exist, but we're right here and we do this work. So that, that was one of the issues uh, growing up, um, not, not seeing myself within the orchestra, not seeing people who, who look like me or who, who might have similar experiences for me. But that's something that I think we have to address and, that's, that's, and um, you're starting to see more and more of an effort from different institutions and, and, and different um, education, educational platforms. Hello, I'm Jumoke Fashala. Welcome to a special podcast yet unheard from the London Sinfonietta. The past year has radically impacted the London Sinfonietta, and as an organisation, it has had to look at the role of the arts and its particular remit within it. How should the arts respond to the changing cultural landscape and events such as the murder of George Floyd or the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement? Andrew Burke is the Chief Executive and Artistic Director of the London Sinfonietta. Andrew, what has the past year been like for the Sinfonietta? Well, it's been a difficult year for the London Sinfonietta, like many arts organisations, as we've managed our way through the pandemic and through the lockdowns. But as a result, we found ourselves responding to the situation we were in in different ways. And in one way, um, we felt compelled to say something after the summer of last year, when the Black Lives Matter movement really came to the fore. And as a result, the Yet Unheard concert, which George Lewis and Elaine Michener curated for us, will stay in our memory as the most impactful event we've done during the lockdown, as we were able to be part of a broader conversation about equality and inclusion in the arts. And how has the organisation changed in response to the Black Lives Matter movement? Well, since the Yet Unheard concert, um, we've really focused on how we as an organisation are responding to the agenda that that concert explored. We've charted how many commissions and pieces um, we've been able to play from composers of an ethnically diverse background. Uh, we've even charted um, how many commissions and pieces we've played of female composers compared to male composers. And it's really evolved to a place where this feels not just something we ought to do, but it's absolutely the right thing to do 
and we're on a journey now to turn this organisation into one which, as a contemporary music organisation, responds to the contemporary society that we're part of. So throughout this yet unheard podcast, we're going to hear from a variety of artists who have worked with or been commissioned by the London Sinfonietta and also those involved in the ensemble's yet unheard live concert, which was held last October, including the Zimbabwean-American conductor Vimbayi Kaziboni, who conducted the concert, the African-Caribbean composer Hannah Kendall, and the co-curators of the yet unheard concert, George Lewis, composer and professor of American music at Columbia University, and the vocalist, movement artist, and composer Elaine Michener. We'll also have exclusive excerpts from the Yet Unheard concert. But before that, how do artists view the way organisations like the London Sinfonietta have responded to the challenge of the Black Lives Matter movement and last summer's uprisings? Well, here's Hannah Kendall. The changes in programming that I found in response to the uprising of the Black Lives Matter movement this year is certainly a good thing and it's certainly a positive thing and something that I've been really pleased to see eventually. (laughs) You know, it is something I think a lot of us have been waiting for and I think it's I think it's interesting because obviously, you know, those of us who would consider ourselves as part of the African diaspora, quite frankly, have been mostly aiming to write the best possible music that we could ever write and trying to develop our practice and to wrestle with it and take it in new directions in a way that any artist would do. And so I think it's good that that's being recognised. And so I think that has been a very proactive thing. That's, you know, proactive work that um, composers, artists, musicians will all do. And I suppose I find the response um, very reactive. And I suppose, you know, that's something that, you know, for me personally, always comes as a bit of a red flag because I'm a huge supporter of proactive work rather than reactive. So I suppose that while I'm hopeful all of these changes will continue, I suppose my pessimistic side would say this can't be reactive. But why has there been a dearth of black composers not being programmed? Well, Elaine Michener knows how challenging it has been in the past to get diverse composers programmed. I I used to work... Some time ago, on the other side of the desk, I used to promote composers. Yes. So I know how uh, frustrating it is for composers to not have their work programmed. And mm. you can't second guess an artistic director or a programmer. You just can't. And when you are promoting and pitching work, you, you have to be mindful and sensitive mm. to what those programmes may be and what people might want to cover. Well, the composer, George Lewis, is keen to point out what the essence of diverse voices means for the artistic landscape. So for me, a failure to hear these black voices and experiences, it's a form of sensory deprivation. And it's also an addiction 
to exclusion. And like a lot of addictions, uh, it ends up killing you or impoverishing you. And there are even wider concerns raised by such an absence, according to conductor Vimbayi Kasiboni. Uh, that, that's crucial. And, uh, and George talks, speaks very eloquently about, about this subject, about the need for um, an early exposure, mm. um, uh, the need to address the, the myth of absence, mm. the, um, the, the myth that we don't exist. But, yes. but we're right here and we do this work. So that, that was one of the issues uh, growing up, um, not, not seeing myself within the orchestra, not seeing people who, who look like me or who, who might have similar experiences for me. But that's something that I think we have to address and, that's, that's, and um, you're starting to see more and more of an effort from different institutions and, and, and different um, education, educational platforms. And Leila Adu Gilmore concurs that there is definitely a need for an early exposure to the arts and a need for representation of black composers in education. So, I mean, if we think of of these great composers, why would we miss them out? Um, why would we miss them out of the picture if it weren't for some kind of prejudice? It's just who we expect to be on the stage, who we expect to learn about. So I teach music, I teach uh, the history of music through computer music, and I start with Sun Ra and Stockhausen. So I just don't take out the black people. It's pretty easy to do. And that's what classical music needs to do because it has a different audience than other kinds of music. So, and those people have power, you know, in their voting and their money and their lifestyle and basically I think that everybody should try to understand other experience so if you're into classical music try listening to some classical music from a different you know different perspective I'm walking on ghosts I'm walking on ghosts I'm thinking about thought I'm thinking about thought And no one has mentioned your name And I say Ghost Lullaby from Freedom Suite by Leila Adu-Gilmore. You're listening to Yet Unheard, a podcast from the London Sinfonietta. I'm Jumoke Fashala. Let's turn now to the question of identity and heritage and what unique perspectives it can bring to the work being composed. How important is it to reflect self-identity as a black composer and artist? And can it be too much of a burden for artists? Here's Hannah Kendall. A huge part of my research at the moment is about drawing together all of the aspects uh, of my identity, really. And but more specifically through the work that I'm making and through my practice, um, because it's something that I've always known about myself as a person. But I suppose what I'm trying to do is, you know, perhaps 
find some sort of reconciliation between my African Caribbean heritage and working within a Western classical idiom. And in doing that, I think what I'm doing is creating more interesting work because, you know, I'm very much looking at it from a black British perspective. I think, and I've certainly found that when we think about blackness or black culture, again, there's an automatic assumption to African-Americanism and something that I'm specifically looking at is um, British colonialism and how that has, you know, created um, a whole, you know, diaspora of people from, you know, with African heritage who are also British and European and the, the multi-layers and the multifaceted nature in which we live and work and think. Um, and that's what I'm really trying to create in my music because I think it adds another dimension, a new perspective. So for example, with Vidala and um, Caribbean people, British Caribbean people um, living in the UK, you know, it doesn't start with the Windrush generation. It goes right, right, right back. And, and the fact that how that history sort of unraveled itself in this candle in 2018 and something that's going on, I think it highlights perfectly the, the, you know, the misunderstanding of the history and the connection. And so, yeah, what I'm really focused on now is trying to find ways to, you know, creolize my own work, as um, George Lewis might say. And, you know, it's something that I'm very excited about and something that I hope will create new and interesting works. And she's not alone. Leila Adu-Gilmore has a New Zealand background. I was thinking about the role, I guess, of Indigenous society in contemporary society. And I think the reason that I had that thought is that the, is because I'm from New Zealand. And New Zealanders who are not uh, Māori, not Indigenous, are called Pākehā. And it's pretty common for people to identify themselves as Pākehā. So I think that just that mindset of being a Pākehā in New Zealand and Indigenous, you know, with Indigenous culture there and present and more and more present with, um, you know, Māori. Since I was a kid, Māori has now become a language that is taught to kids in school. Teachers have to learn it. And it's just, I think that it became something that's really a matter of pride for New Zealanders. I obviously, I can't speak for every New Zealander, but it's something that's just growing and growing in our, uh, our awareness. Um, newscasters who would say indigenous names incorrectly now say them correctly. And it's just coming in, into the consciousness really strongly, um, Maori music, Maori art, etc. Indigena by Tanya Leon. 
But there is a danger that black diverse art will only be seen through the prism of trauma and therefore artists may find themselves hampered by those expectations. So how do they embrace the notion of being such a composer or artist without losing their sense of freedom or conforming to that stereotype? Well, I remember meeting Noah Purifoy. Adrian Yenick, the multimedia artist, introduced me to him when he was living in Joshua Tree, California, by himself, 80, 83 years old, making these incredible giant assemblages. And I came to him, and the first thing he said was, I don't make protest art. <laughs> I said, well, I don't either. <laughs> so, <laughs> But it really is about mobility. Although one shouldn't shy away from trauma, for example, I think Hannah Kendall's work for Dalla deals with a very difficult period in the British West Indian Regiment where basically they were sent out on this voyage from the Caribbean to England without the proper outfitting of the ship and, many, and some of them died and many of them were, were disabled. So we don't want to shy away from these things, but we don't want to be overdetermined by them either. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, joy in black life, right? There's a lot of, we can expect a complete panoply of emotions and standpoints and points of view from black music as from any music. And so what we want to do is we want to just, instead of prejudging or overdetermining or generalizing, you can't do that. There's just too much out there. So what you want to do is you, you just want to just listen to a lot of it. And then after a while, you start to see that it's just like any other music, that you know, people are expressing their dreams and hopes and aspirations, and, and they want to be mobile, and people don't want to get stuck in one place. And George is keen that artists define their own identity and role. It seems to me that artists should define for themselves what their roles are. I don't think there's a single role out there. Uh, people... I'm always saying that mobility requires us to be comfortable doing what we feel we need to do. Um, and maybe I can talk about my own role. I feel that I operate as an artist, but I also operate as a musicologist. Mm -hmm. And so what it, that comes down to for me is that I'm interested in illuminating situations. I'm interested in making changes that many people can become involved in, sort of increasing access. In other words, I'm giving back what I was given by the AACM and other of my colleagues. Because once, the, you know, the artistic community can be seen, can serve as a kind of microcosm, as a kind of model for how many of us can uh, come together collectively to create change. We need artists to say, tell people what could be different, that things could be different. They don't have to be like this. So can contemporary classical music have a broader societal impact? Leila Adugilmore thinks so. I write songs and, you know, I, I have a practice of being a piano player and singer and I, as Leila Adu, and I've been singing those songs for 20 years and some of them are political, some of them are about love, some of them are about friends, you know, so they can be about all sorts of things. Um, I think that I bring social uh, meaning to classical music in particular because classical music has a gravitas about it and it takes me months to write this music so you know when I go in to do a long long piece of music that's going to take me months to write I 
tend to be thinking of something more along those lines. But I mean, I just wrote a piece now, it's a, um, an oratorio called Mahakala Oratorio with Buddhist text. And it's also a protecting powerful force for the planet, but it doesn't have any current social idea. It's more ways to deal with that through calm and activism and stuff, but it's a traditional Buddhist text, yeah. And other social and religious traditions have also provided inspiration for composers. Take, for instance, Courtney Bryan's Sanctum, which, according to George Lewis, was inspired by the Black Church holiness preaching traditions. Well, let me, I, I hate to, I wish Courtney were here to tell us about it. I mean, <laughs> Courtney's work, like, let's say, Leila Adu Gilmore's, is very much connected with Black Lives Matter, but also with police brutality. I mean, look, I, I didn't grow up in that tradition in the same way that Courtney did, but I certainly know about it. And I went to the, the events and the holiness church and all the yelling and, and people falling out and speaking in tongues. And, you know, I, I saw that stuff. And so, but she relates that to modern protest chants, which I think is very important. In other words, it's not so far away. The same kinds of ecstasies that come up in the holiest traditions are also present when people are going to the streets trying to make change, particularly along the lines of what Courtney's, what Courtney's interests are in Black Lives Matter, and particularly in police brutality, combating police brutality through music. This piece is a good example, and also her uh, even larger piece, Yet Unheard, uh, which uh, talks about the murder police murder of, of Sandra Bland. So I think that in a sense, um, faith, as it was for Martin Luther King and, and, and Fred Shuttlesworth and C.T. Vivian and all those preachers, uh, faith can um, become a way of combating uh, these issues, a way mm. of making change. And so I think Courtney sees that. And this is mm. what the piece, at least part of what the piece means to me. Sanctum by Courtney Bryan. You've been listening to part one of Yet Unheard, a podcast from the London Sinfonietta. I'm Jumoke Fashala. Do join us for the next edition when we'll be hearing about composers and their inspirations and more. Thanks for listening. This was a London Sinfonietta production. For more content, please visit the London Sinfonietta channel, subscribe to our monthly newsletter, and follow us on social media.